0: My name is Kimberly Mutcherson. I am the co-dean of Rutgers Law School on the Camden campus, and this is The Power of Attorney. This is going to be one of our um, super interesting episodes because we are again talking to someone who is outside of the Rutgers Law community. Um, This was a conversation that was supposed to be happening in our building, but unfortunately, because of the times, we have to do it virtually. We are extremely lucky today to have with us Commissioner Ellen Weintraub from the Federal Election Commission, and I'm very much looking forward to talking with you for this podcast, Commissioner Weintraub.
1: Well, thank you, Dean Mutchison. It's really a pleasure to be here. Thank
0: you so much. So the way I usually like to start this podcast is to give people an opportunity to tell us uh, their origin story, right? There are so many ways that a person could spend um, her life and you chose to become a lawyer. So can we talk about that a little
1: bit? Were you one of those people who grew up knowing that you were going to go to law school? Actually, no. Um, my my father was a lawyer. He didn't practice, but he was a, a lawyer. And my parents, through my entire childhood, um, told me that I would be a great lawyer. So the last thing I wanted to do when I got out of college was to go to law school, of right. course. <laughs> But I I worked for three years in between college and law school, and what I discovered during that time I was working in uh, for two out of the three years in state government in Massachusetts, and what I discovered was that the people who were making decisions in government were not necessarily the subject matter experts; they were the lawyers, Mm. and I had a a long time commitment to doing something for the good of the community, for doing some kind of public service. And I wanted to be one of those decision makers. So I decided that I would go to law school. And um, I I think I didn't, I I will tell you the truth, I didn't really like law school that much Mm -hmm. at the time, but I, I am glad to have done it. And I am glad for the opportunities that it has given me. Excellent. Well, I know that you went to Yale for undergrad, and then you went to
0: Harvard for law school. I would love to hear a little bit. I mean, one of the things that's really great about the time that we are in now is that women are about 50% um, of law school classes and have been for some time. Although, of course, we all know that as women get out into the world and to, certainly into the upper echelons of a lot of the legal field, um, they start to disappear. But I'm curious what it was like when you were as a woman in law school at Harvard at the time that you were there. Did it feel like a, a space where you were welcome?
1: I still felt that there was some degree of uh, a little bit of bias in favor of the male students when I went to law school. And I did know uh, a lot of people who ended up dropping out of uh, the legal profession along the way or uh, making different kinds of of choices to accommodate their families. So, you know, I'm not going to say it was, you know, the way Ruth Bader Ginsburg described it when when she was going back to the uh, was going to school but you know when I went to to Yale it was only there it had only been about six years since women were even admitted to Yale so mm. it was still pretty much a new phenomenon back then and there have been many times in my career when I have been the only woman in the room when I first started at the FEC I was the only woman on the Commission I, I was not the first woman to ever to join the Commission but at that time I was the only woman and it's um, it is a it's an experience that i got used to of uh, being mm-hmm. the only woman at the table that is that's that subsequently changed and uh at the moment well at the moment we don't have a uh, sufficient number of commissioners but uh two out of the three sitting commissioners are women right now so the uh, i suppose our our odds have increased right
0: <laughs> one of the things that i think is interesting and i sh- and i should um i'll just mention here that i'm actually the first woman to be dean on our campus of of Rutgers Law School, the first woman to be dean across Rutgers Law School, actually. And so one of the things that's really interesting to me is to talk to other women about that experience of being either the first or being, you know, the only in so many spaces that you move through. Um, And in particular, whether you think that there are ways that your presence, you know, positively has changed and continues to change the environments that you've been able to be in.
1: Well, for one thing, I brought Take your Kids to Work Day to the FEC. They never used to uh, celebrate that until I got there, and I had little kids at the time who were used to me taking them to work on Take your Kids to Work Day. so I had to start a program there so that uh, which became very popular. a lot of the uh, a lot of the staff uh, look forward to that every year and yes i'm I'm always looking for opportunities to to mentor and to encourage other women uh, to try to find their place. In the world, and to speak out and to use their voice. I'm a great believer in using my voice and my platform in in a fairly assertive way. So I hope that I am modeling good behavior for, for other women who are coming along behind me. Great, I love that. So you
0: went to law school. You you know you decided that you wanted to get the law degree. You were also a person who was thinking in you know what we would sort of call the sort of public interest or public service minded way. Um so what did you what did you think that you were going to do with that law degree once you graduated and and is it what you ended up doing?
1: I didn't have a clear idea what I was going to do with it, but I'm sure that this was not what I anticipated. I don't think anybody mm-hmm. grows up thinking when I grow up, I want to be a federal election commissioner <laughs> um, right. but i have been I've been very lucky i think in in my career and 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 I've also confronted some obstacles. Along the way, when I was a young lawyer in my first job, we uh, I you know the easiest thing to do when you're in a in a law school is to sign up and go work for a big law firm that yeah. you know they come to the campus and they interview you there and they just you know they offer you a lot of money uh, and it's just the easiest thing to do, and I never really anticipated I was going to do that forever, but I did start out in a, a in a Wall Street law firm. And I knew but I knew all along that I would probably end up in in Washington, in part because my husband was very interested in politics and I knew he was going to want to move to Washington. And that is indeed what happened. Two years after we uh, we started um, in New York, we we both moved to D.C. I was uh, able to move to the D.C. office of my New York based law firm and and we bought a house and and uh, and we had a baby and things were just going swimmingly, and I thought, wow, this is this is really great, this is easy, I've got this. And then what happened was uh, we started to realize after about, oh, a year and a quarter, year and a half, that my son was not developing in the way that babies are supposed to develop. And we started down a road of going through a lot of doctor's appointments and trying to figure out what was, what was wrong. And uh, back then, it was not as prevalent as it is today, so it took a long time before we figured out that uh, my son has autism. Uh, He's fairly severely uh, impacted by it. He doesn't speak. And uh, that was a a very difficult time in my life. And was also during that same year that we were running from doctor to doctor trying to figure out what what was wrong with him and what we could do about it, um, we tried to have another baby and I had a miscarriage and, um, my father was diagnosed with cancer. So it was, um, pretty much the worst year of my life. And not surprisingly, my billable hours really plummeted that year. And, you know, I, I went from a place where I felt like I was really on top of the world to, uh, everything kind of crashing in around me. And it was at that time that it, I mean, it became clear to me that I wasn't going to be able to continue on at a law firm that valued billable hours above all things with everything else that was going on in my life. So I started to look for another job and I sent a hundred resumes out to the Hill because uh, my husband seemed to be having more fun than I was working on the (laughs) Hill. and uh, I was still in private practice and I went to talk to a headhunter and the headhunter said, well, what kind of law do you think you might like to specialize in? And I said, you know, I've done some work in ethics law and I really like that. And she said, you can't get a job doing ethics law, so my next job was at the House Ethics Committee as counsel <laughs> to the House Ethics Committee, and 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 I got that job strictly by just sending out a whole lot of resumes, and you know I had no connections. They say you need a connection to get a job on the Hill, and and I didn't have any, so I really started down a different career path at that point of um, congressional ethics and political law. And uh, after doing that for a number of years, I I was able to I ended up going back into private practice. I um, also in a political law practice, which meant that I was doing not only political ethics but also campaign finance, lobbying, regulation, nonprofit law, and really uh, that's the constellation of issues that usually is. Practiced together in in the in the private sector, so that broadened my field of expertise. And uh, we also represented at, at that firm a lot of the Democrats on the Hill, including uh, which was key to my career, Tom Daschle, who was then the um, Senate Democratic leader. And at a time when the way the way commissioner appointments usually work is that the president nominates the commissioners of his or her own party, and then the uh, leader of the opposition party in the Senate recommends to the president for nomination people from uh, their party. So I was recommended to the president for this job by Tom Daschle based on the fact that I had Done legal work for him and his his office, so I was known to them. I was known to a lot of people on the Hill from my work in the uh, on the Ethics Committee. The reform community was comfortable with me based on my reputation and based on the work I had done at the Ethics Committee. And the politicians were comfortable with me because I had represented a bunch of them.
0: Mm-hmm. And I
1: should say, by the way, that going back to the worst year of my life, that that after the worst year in my life, uh, when I Adjusted my career pattern, and uh, we also subsequently had two more delightful, healthy children. My father was treated for his cancer and lived another 10 years. And uh, raising my son has been uh, kind of an amazing experience, incredibly challenging, not at all what we were expecting when we first became parents. But I think everyone in my family would say that having him as part of our family has made us stronger, better, more compassionate people, and that he has taught us a lot more than we ever taught him. When I used to be asked about my career path, I would leave out that year. I wouldn't Mm -hmm. talk about it. But lately, I've been talking about it more and more, because I think it's particularly important for young professionals to know that sometimes bad things happen in your life, and you have no control over them. And what you need to know is that it's not going to last forever that you can get through it, and sometimes new opportunities will come out of the strangest places because I was looking for a job at that moment uh, because my uh, continued work in the law firm was untenable given my the needs of my family. I ended up launching on an entirely new career path, which led me to the position that I have today, a position that I find enormously satisfying, that I think I'm reasonably good at. And that, I, you know, I don't know if I would be in the place that I am today if if not for that really awful moment in time. So my message to young professionals is to know that opportunities could come from the strangest places and you just need to be strong through the bad times in your life and and good things can still happen. Don't let the bad stuff overwhelm you to the point where you think it's never going to get better because it really can get better. And um I, I feel very, very privileged to be doing the work that I do to be able to serve the American people. I feel like I have the best client in the world, and that is the American people. And that is the only concern that I have every day when I sit down to do my job is what would be the best thing for the American public and what are the best policies that this agency can adopt to promote our democracy and make our, our election system stronger.
0: Wonderful Thank you so much for sharing that story. you know I think that often when we have conversations with students and sometimes they feel really nervous about you know what what is my life path going to be and I have to make all these decisions now. And one of the things that I think is so true and, and I will often say this to students is that you can make lots and lots of plans but ultimately life intervenes you know um, you can always pick which direction that you are going to go in. And just you know, being able to kind of roll with those punches is, is particularly a really poignant message for where we are right now, when we're all being forced—I mean, sort of collectively, not just as a country um, but as a world—you know—really being forced to reckon with this incredibly jarring experience that we're all having with this pandemic, and recognizing that you know you come out on the other side of these things. The other the other piece of your story, though, that I think is really re- going to resonate with some of our our students and, and other folks who are listening is that you were in a job that was not able to become compatible with the life that you were having. And I you know one of the things that I would like to think is true is that work environments, legal environments, law firms slowly, but slowly but surely are becoming places where people can be can be a caregiver, you can have time that you need to be away from office from the office. You can be a person who is focus deeply on your family, but also have a particular type of career in the law. So my hope would be that if you were in that position now, that your that your firm um, might actually be able to be more accessible to you than it was at the time. But, you know, maybe, maybe that's just a hope, but, but we will see.
1: Well, I hope that you're right. I mean, th- it is definitely true that the firm that I was at then was not very family friendly. Uh, there was only one woman partner in the firm, and she was famous for having three nannies so she could have somebody on, on duty round the clock. And no. she was writing briefs from her hospital bed, you know, minutes after delivering one of her babies, you know, it's, it's just, it was, it was not a very family friendly environment. I'll just put it at that. And uh hopefully firms are, have gotten a lot better about that in the intervening years.
0: Yeah. I think we're getting there. And I think part of what helps is having more, women in positions of power who are able to pull the levers and and change the rules and men as well, right? I mean, it's not just women who are making these changes.
1: It has to be men as well, because if it's only women, then it it will always be considered a woman's issue. And that is not what we need.
0: That's exactly right. One of the other things that I often talk about with students, and I think we all do this within uh, law schools, is the flexibility of having a law degree, right? That you don't have to be a person who is practicing law every day in this sort of typical law and order, you know, private practice kind of way that you see on television. That there are many different ways to be a lawyer. And I think that your career really highlights that in a way that I think is is really useful. The other thing is, is I think that students often will say to us things like, oh, I want to I wanna go into government. I want to be a lawyer in government and not really know what that means. So I wonder if you could expound a little bit on what it was like being, you know, a lawyer who was working for the House Ethics Committee, right? What kinds of things were you working on? What was your life like? Um, and then also, you know, what does it mean to represent to be a lawyer for members of Congress? What are some of the things that you had to do in that kind of work? And then, of course, we're going to get to the FEC.
1: Well, I loved my job on the Hill. I thought that was a terrific experience. And uh, it was uh, enhanced by the uh, fact that back then, the Ethics Committee had this great suite right in the Capitol building itself. So Every day I got to go into the Capitol, I would, mm. I would walk up to the Capitol building and see that beautiful dome and think this is where I work. And it was, it, you know, it, it it got me every single day that that never gets old. Mm-hmm. So, you know, knowing that you are there right in the middle of the institution that is designed to represent and serve the American people. it is a, It's a really great experience. I had a slightly anomalous experience working for the ethics committee because we didn't really do that much work on legislation. What I did there was mostly advise members of, of Congress on on what the ethics rules were and uh, how to keep themselves out of trouble. And I s- dealt with members on both sides of the aisle, and I like that too. I liked I liked being able to talk to people on both sides and being viewed as somebody who would be honest with people on both sides and just try and protect them, to, to, to give them the best possible advice to explain the law, but also to think beyond the law as to you know some of the bigger picture issues of what it takes to be an honest and ethical government servant. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've always been interested in those issues and found them compelling and i and I liked being able to work with members and and help them figure those issues out for themselves and And you know, obviously, people fall in different places on the spectrum. Some people would come in with uh, kind of an aggressive attitude of, well, if you know I want to do this and if I can't do it, then you better tell me exactly where in the law it says I can't mm-hmm. and and other people would come in and say, well, I want to be really careful and I want to make sure that I never get anywhere close to any ethical line. So if you tell me that this is at all questionable, I'm definitely not going to do it. And of course, there's a range of in, in between, but most people I found really did want to comply with the rules. And and that's something that has carried over to uh, my current position as well. I mean, I it's it's um, it's been kind of a continuum for me where representing advising members, both on the hill and then off the hill in private practice. The uh, issues that I was advising them on were very similar to the kinds of issues that I advised them on when I was uh, working at the ethics committee. And now I have a slightly different role, but still one of the important functions of the FEC is making sure that everyone understands the law and understands the rules. I don't want to sandbag anybody. I want them to know what the rules are so that they can comply with them. And most people do want to comply with them. If you explain the rules to people, most people will follow them. Can you explain to to folks
0: who are listening, what what is the role that the FEC plays? And certainly it's a role that I think people are paying a lot more attention to um, over the last several years.
1: We are the agency that was set up in the wake of Watergate to follow the money. Mm -hmm. Every campaign, every political party, every super PAC, they all have to file regular reports with the FEC disclosing where their money comes from and what they are spending it on. And uh, that disclosure function is really at the core of our mission. The Supreme Court has held that it's essential to an informed electorate to know who is behind the candidates, who is supporting them, where they're getting their money from, and what they are spending it on. And that information is filed with the FEC. We put it up on the website. It's available to the public. It's available to opposition researchers. It's available to journalists and researchers. And... I think it's really important information when you, when you see an ad. A political ad, you need to know who's behind it in order to really evaluate the credibility of that ad. And I Mm -hmm. think that kind of information is particularly important. Stepping back and speaking a little bit more broadly, right now at a time when people are getting more and more of their information online, and uh, at this moment in time when people are spending a lot of time online, I would urge everyone to be really careful about making sure they know where the information that they are consuming is coming from, particularly if they're going to share it with other people. You have to watch out for uh, disinformation, which is rampant on the internet around the coronavirus, around our elections, around all sorts of hot button issues. And I think that we all really need to be extra careful these days to make sure we know where we are getting our information. And this disclosure function uh, when it comes to political information is at the core of the mission of the FEC, but I think it is also good advice for everyone when they are consuming information online to make sure they know where it's coming from.
0: Absolutely. You know, one of one of the issues that has been such a huge part of our politics for the last several years, decades probably, is some would say the increasing influence of money in politics, and the you know after a case like Citizens United, the ways in which you know corporations have been able to throw lots of money into um, into elections, the sort of cynicism I think that comes along with that for a lot of people, where they feel like that politicians are basically beholden to the people who give them these huge donations and that, you know, politics is no longer this space where we can think people are just trying to do good things. And, you know, so some of that idea of kind kind of trying to get the money out of politics is also to try to get, get the money out of politicians in some ways. You've been doing this work for a while. I mean, you've been on the commission since 2002, right? Yes. And so I wonder if you, you know, what your thoughts are about whether we're doing a good job in terms of, you know, taking that, that money that people are so cynical about, that's, that's such a part of our elections now. Are we doing a better job of making that, you know, less prominent in elections? Is it not going to go away? Are we going back and forth? Sort of where, where
1: would you say that we are now? Well, we are never going to get money out of politics. So, you know, let's (laughs) be clear about that. Uh, And legitimately, candidates need to get their message out. And Mm -hmm. running a campaign costs money. So it's got to come from somewhere. There have been proposals for public financing in federal elections. We used to have a, a functional public financing system for presidential campaigns. It's, it's really become obsolete and would need to be reformed if anybody was going to use it. None of the major candidates do use it these days, but there are proposals to fix that and to make it more broadly available to other federal candidates. That is a, an interesting idea, and it's an idea that, that I would support, but that's not where we are today. Money does play an important role in politics. It is not dispositive. In the 2016 election, Hillary Clinton raised and spent more money than Donald Trump did, and she mm-hmm. lost. So mm-hmm. it, there's not a simple one-to-one relationship between money and success in politics. However, it is plainly very influential. Candidates do need to raise a lot of money in order to in in order to run a competitive campaign. You don't necessarily have to raise more money than your uh, than your opponent, but you have to raise enough to be competitive. And in this world of super PACs, which are allowed under the Supreme Court's rulings to raise unlimited amounts of money, we have this weird dichotomy where an individual candidate is limited in how much money they can, they can raise from individuals because the Supreme Court held long ago and has never uh, retracted this, that there is an inherent risk of corruption in, accepting, in candidates accepting unlimited contributions. An, an inherent risk and yet the court has also held that there is no risk of corruption when the money doesn't go directly to the candidates but rather goes to an independent group and you know we can we can talk about how independent some of these independent groups really are but the premise is that these groups are going to be independent of the candidates and therefore according to the Supreme Court that the the money that's raised and spent by the super PACs, cannot be corrupting the Supreme Court says ingratiation and access is not corruption I'm not sure I agree with them but mm-hmm. that that is the that is the legal doctrine that that we have to deal with and we have now a situation where you can't give three thousand dollars to a candidate because that would be considered inherently corrupting but you could give three million dollars to a super PAC that is doing nothing but supporting that very same candidate mm-hmm. and query whether that system makes any sense at all there are uh, an increasing number of races at the senate level for example where outside spending groups are outspending the candidates mm-hmm. so there is more information that is being conveyed about the candidates by people other than the candidates than by the candidates themselves and in some races it's by a factor of 2 to 3 times the amount of spending in the uh, in the last 3 election cycles, the top uh, most expensive, if you looked at the most expensive Senate races, the top 10 races of six or seven out of those top 10 races in each of the last three election cycles involved races where outside spending groups spent more than the candidates themselves. So this is not a small phenomenon. This has become the new normal. Uh, In the decades since Citizens United, there's been $4.5 billion in non-party outside spending. There's been $1.2 billion given to candidates, parties, and other political groups by the top 10 donors. 10 donors gave $1.2 billion, almost a billion dollars in dark money, uh, money that is spent by groups that don't disclose their donors. uh, If you look just at 2018, of all the money that went to super PACs in 2018, the top one percent of donors gave 96 percent of the money. And I should give uh, credit where credit is due. A lot of these statistics were compiled by the Center for Responsive Politics, the folks who run the OpenSecrets.org website. So um Those are extraordinary numbers. Yes. Yes. I mean, wow. if you look at 2018, for example, there were, I think, 126 donors who gave over a million dollars. There were 12 or 13 who gave over $10 million. And then there was one family that gave $122 million. Wow. So there are there is a small number of donors who have an inordinate role, uh, a disproportionate role in all the money that is being spent in politics. And you know for obvious reasons those those people their views are going to be listened to by by office holders on both sides of the aisle if they want to call up a member of congress one of these big donors everybody's going to return their call they are enormously influential and in the issues that they care about and there are and there are donors on both sides in this category the issues that they care about are not issues that any Office holder can afford to ignore. And what concerns me about that is uh, what does that mean for the ordinary citizen and the issues that they care about? Uh, right. Why should a small number of people have such a disproportionate influence over the political debate in our country? So, I guess the question
0: that lots of people would ask then is what's the answer, right? I mean, we've had various attempts over the years you know to scale back that kind of influence and yet we're still seeing it happen so is is this a, a problem that congress has to sort out is it a problem that the supreme court has to sort out is it a problem that individual voters you know using their voices have to sort out how do we how do we at least start down the path towards
1: fixing this i do think that the supreme court is just out of sync with the way most people think about money and politics uh, every poll that's been done on citizens united shows uh, over 80% of the country thinks that this decision was wrongly decided, but that is the that's the law that we have to deal with. The Supreme Court held as far back as the Buckley decision in 1976 that a level playing field in money and politics is antithetical to the First Amendment. So mm-hmm. think about that. This is the mm-hmm. this is the only competition that we have in in that I know of where we the basic ground rules establish that you cannot have a level playing field. You mm. cannot impose a level playing field, which is a kind of an interesting situation. The uh, And it's not the only way that one could look at the law. Our Supreme Court thinks that the only way to promote robust, wide-open debate is to have no limits on spending. Another way of looking at that would be the way the Canadian Supreme Court looked at it when they were confronted with the same issue. And they said, The way to promote the most wide open, robust debate is to make sure that you have a level playing field, because if one side can outspend the other, they can drown out the other side. And then the voters will not get equal access to the information that they need in order to make informed decisions. But you asked for a solution. So uh, (laughs) let me let me let's turn to a more positive note. I don't want to make it sound like this is all, all hopeless because I don't think it is. There are, as I said, proposals for enhancing public funding at the uh, federal level. There are successful public funding programs at the state and local level. New York City has a particularly good... Uh, and robust public uh, matching program where small donations are matched. I think it used to be a six-to-one match, and I think it may have gone up to an eight or nine. They they increased the match so that it, it behooves politicians to reach out to more people and try and get more grassroots support from more small donors, and then they are rewarded for doing that with a uh, multiple match from uh, public dollars. The city of Seattle has a really interesting idea that they are trying out called democracy vouchers, where every uh, municipal citizen, I think it's for uh, voting age citizens, gets four $25 vouchers, which they can provide to candidates for municipal office. And the interesting thing about this is that it really changes the motivations of candidates in terms of who they are going to spend their time with and who they're going to be listening to and seeking the support of. Whereas before, the candidates would have incentive to go to talk to people who could give them money, and they would have incentive to go and talk to people who they expected to turn out and vote. But there are certain communities that don't have money and don't have a very high turnout rate for voting and for those communities, you know, they tend to get ignored. But now every citizen in Seattle has something of value that would make it important for every candidate to go and reach out to as many citizens as possible, to go to underserved neighborhoods, to go to places where maybe they didn't campaign before. It really changes the dynamics and the incentive structure. That so, is such I a think- fascinating idea. I had n- I had not heard about that. Yes. And uh, I think that there are interesting and innovative ideas that are being tried out at the state and local level like that, that, that could be incorporated into federal legislation. There are bills that that have proposed a pilot program modeled on that democracy voucher. Program. There are uh, bills that would try a public funding system at the federal level that is similar to the one that is in New York City. So the the cities and states are leading on these issues, and mm-hmm. uh, this is an area where I think that citizens need to demand action from their office holders at at all levels of government. Because I think that there is a lot of cynicism amongst the uh, political class. Also, they don't think that voters, they don't think that regular citizens really care that much about the issue of money and politics. Mm-hmm. And if if citizens would speak out about this more, would show up at town meetings back when we are able to have town meetings again, if they would write and email and call their their legislators and their and their office holders to express their views on this issue, I think that there are things that could be done and things could change. Wonderful. One of the other issues,
0: obviously that that plays into our political system as well, and again, is an issue that's been around for a long time but has I think has been getting even more people have been paying even more attention to it in the last several years, is the idea of voter suppression, of, you know, uh, felon disenfranchisement, you know, all these other sorts of things that are happening and ways in which our country has not made it, as easy to vote <laughs> as some other countries have done. And I saw that one of, the, one of the pieces that you put out very recently in response to this pandemic that we're living through right now was a piece about the importance of mail-in voting, right? Not having to actually go to your polling place on the day of. And we know, you know, we've seen elections where people are in certain communities, um, you know, low-income communities, rural communities, sometimes, you know, they're standing in line for five or six hours. Um, in order to vote. So I wonder if you can imagine a shift in the way that we are setting up our elections, making uh, election day a, a federal holiday um, making it easier for people to you know, mail in ballots. I mean, are these the kinds of things that can have the impact that we want to see where we get you know, a lot more people casting their votes?
1: I I would love to see that. I have been a long proponent of making voting easier, making it more accessible. We shouldn't put barriers between citizens and their government. We shouldn't put barriers between citizens and being able to exercise their franchise. Uh, I think it is terrific, though, the bipartisan, strong support in the state of Florida the voters really turned out and supported the reenfranchisement uh, of uh, returning citizens who who had been imprisoned and you know we want to bring people back into the community and and give them a sense of civic ownership and and really there are so many ways that people can get involved I, I think that people frequently feel that one person can't make a difference and mm. it's just not true in in the state of Michigan one young woman, made a post on her Facebook page because she was frustrated with gerrymandering and ended up launching a petition. She found out that there were many, many people who agreed with her and they launched a petition drive and they changed the way the state of Michigan is going to go about dealing with designing the districts. They adopted a new provision that empowers an independent redistricting commission, taking it out of the hands of the incumbents who are always motivated to draw the districts that are most favorable to their political party. And this all started with one person making one Facebook post and uh, expressing her desire to do something about it. On the vote by mail, obviously everyone is worried about health these days. We have to worry about our citizens health and we also have to worry about our democracy's health. And it is something that we can anticipate that it might not be safe for people to show up and stand in long lines to vote. I think we need to put the resources behind our democracy to have enough I mean in, even in a in a different kind of year to have enough polling places to have enough machinery so that people don't have to stand in line for 5 hours no matter what community they come from and and we don't want to see discrepancies between one neighborhood where it, it you can just walk in and vote and another place where people have to stand in in long lines but this year in particular, we have to make sure that people can vote safely and that I think is going to require a much expanded use of vote by mail, not not exclusively vote by mail because there are certain communities that would be disenfranchised by that too. So we need to figure out ways to make voting safe for people to be able to space it out both in time and in place so that people won't be all crunched together when they go to the polling place if they choose to do that. But if they choose to vote remotely, if they don't want to do it by standing in a line somewhere, we have to make that option more widely available.
0: Absolutely agreed. And I, and I hope that, you know, that the the various election commissions and the, the boards of election across the country are really starting to think now. I mean, everybody's sort of in this, you know, head down, let's just get through the week, let's just get through the month, I think, kind of uh, state right now. But certainly we need to be thinking about, you know, our next presidential election, which is right around the corner. And how are we going to make sure that that is an election where we can feel like people really had their opportunity um, to get their voices heard. So, so fingers crossed that, that folks are hearing that message from you.
1: and it, And it needs to be done now. We need to start right. now. This is not something that election officials will be able to turn on a dime in October and say, oh, I guess we haven't beaten back the contagion yet, and we need to start thinking about how people are going to vote. That's going to be too late then. We need to start planning for it now.
0: Right. Absolutely. So let me ask you about one last question and one last sort of area of concern, I think, when it comes to elections. The story that you told about the young woman in Michigan is a really wonderful story. You make a Facebook post and then you have this great outcome that comes from that Facebook post. But definitely one of the things that we have had lots of concerns about, certainly in the 2016 election, was how social media and the internet, Facebook in particular, was named, are are part of this network of allowing for an influence in our elections of, um, you know, pushing lots of misinformation um, out into the world? And how can we feel confident about our elections if we have these technologies that can interfere in those elections and sometimes in really pernicious ways? And I wonder if you have any, any thoughts about where we are in terms of You know, on one hand, being able to use these kinds of platforms, these social media platforms in these incredibly important ways to help organize people. Um, But on the other hand, to use these social media platforms in ways that undermine our elections.
1: Well, again, I think. One thing that everyone has to do is to make sure they know where they are getting their information from. What we saw in 2016 was Russians who were masquerading as American citizens and using uh, fake personas in order to inject ideas into our information stream and try and basically gin people up and sow discord, make people angry at each other. That That is not what we need. We do not need more people pushing our buttons and trying to get us riled up um, at, at this time when people are so anxious about so many things in life. So I would urge everyone to really stop and take a breath, particularly when you see something that is particularly inflammatory and Try and determine where that is coming from, and if it's even coming from uh, a reputable source. I think the platforms have taken some steps to try and address this problem. I mean, in two thousand sixteen, Facebook was accepting money for political ads that was paid in rubles, and um, mm-hmm. because nobody was checking, nobody was even right. looking for it. So now they're on to that. They they figured that one out. But there is no question that. Our, our intelligence community has come out and, uh, and and very bluntly told us that it happened in 2016. They're expecting other nations to try and intervene again in in 2020 and I think that the platforms have tried to step up to some degree, but they could do more. I am concerned that as a response to the coronavirus, Facebook has sent all of their content moderators home, which you know is appropriate mm-hmm. but as a result, all of the content, Moderation is being done by AI at this point, and and there are some big mistakes that are being made on on both sides. Uh, Mm -hmm. One area that I've been interested in is micro-targeting of political ads. And my concern about that is that these platforms, Facebook in particular, have so much data about us, about each of us. This is not data that anybody voluntarily hands over to Facebook and says, here, I want you to know everything about me. This is data that is just sucked out of all of your activity online that Facebook Mm -hmm. collects and uses in order to micro-targeting, in order to micro-target ads. And it's one thing if they're doing it to sell soap, it's quite another thing when they're doing it to sell candidates. Because our standard First Amendment response to information is that if you don't like what somebody is saying, then you should just respond with better information and stronger arguments on the other side. But with micro-targeting, people don't see what's being sent to other people. It is only the the, the ads and the information is designed to appeal almost on an individualized level to people, and nobody else who doesn't think exactly the way you do is going to see the same information stream and and know that they need to respond to it. So I I think micro-targeting of political ads is is dangerous, and uh, what I would like to see is a broader dissemination of speech. This is a this is a good First Amendment response. We should have more people have access to the information so that they will see what's being said, so that candidates can be held accountable for their messages, and they can't get away with saying one thing to one group and, and a different thing to a different group, and everyone has access to the same pool of information.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to have this conversation. I feel like I've learned a tremendous amount from you and have lots of things to think about. And I also want to just thank you for the work that you're doing on the FEC, which is work that's so critical to our democracy now um, and will continue to be in the years to come. So again, thank you for taking the time uh, to speak with us and please stay safe uh, and stay well. And hopefully at some point in the future, we'll be able to actually have you on campus (laughs) Um, and we'll be able to, to talk with students. Um, in that setting. I think that would be terrific.
1: Well, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to have this forum. I would love to come to Rutgers sometime when things are, are safer. And in the meantime, I just want to encourage and urge all of your students in particular, please get out and vote. Get all your friends out to vote. Get all your enemies out to vote. Get everybody out to vote. It is so important. Every vote matters. And you really have to think about this. Voting isn't like marriage. You're not looking for the love of your life who you're going to spend all of your time with. Voting is like public transport. You're trying to get to a destination and you take the bus that will get you as close as possible to your destination. If you can't find a bus that's going exactly where you want to go, you don't stay home. You don't go in the other direction. You take the bus that's getting you the closest. And that's the way people should think about voting. Vote for the candidate. is closest to, uh, has the vision that is closest to your vision for America, but don't sit it out, don't stay home, because this country really needs the energy and the ideas and the participation of every citizen, particularly its young citizens.
0: Absolutely, that is a a wonderful note to end on. Again, um, take care and, and be well, and I look forward to meeting you in person in the future. Thank you so much. Same to you. The Power of Attorney is produced by Rutgers Law School. With two locations minutes from Philadelphia and New York City, Rutgers Law offers the prestige and reputation of a large nationally known university with a personal small campus experience. Learn more by visiting law.rutgers.edu.